I'm going to have notes for you like this every uh, night we get together so that you can um, have something to make paper airplanes with or whatever you want to, to do with them. A reminder, a prayer reminder, and something to reflect on a little bit more as we, um, as we go through the week. Perhaps it would be helpful in those ways. Good to be back with you. We are talking these weeks of Lent about the four directions of the life that Jesus gives us. And um, I like to keep poking at that sentence. He gives you a life. When you come to him in faith, when you yield your life to him, when you believe in him, he plants his life inside you. Not just any life, he plants his life inside you. And from that moment on, the Holy Spirit's going to work inside you to make you more and more like him. That seed is going to grow until it works it all the way through who you are, all the way down, all the way in, all the way through who you are. And so I have um, been working in discipleship in our, in our own parish at St. Stephen's over the last three or four years to focus in on this idea that Jesus gives us his very own life, and his own life uh, is, is going to look like his life when it grows inside you and me. And one of the things that we have locked into is this idea that his life has four directions to it, up, down, in, and out. Up, as you see on the front of your handout tonight, up is, is uh, that we would love, love the Lord, that we would love him with all our heart and everything we are, that he would be our first love, more important to me, in my case, even than my wife. There is nobody I know more important than my wife, except the Lord. And more important than my children, my children mean the world to me. And our grandchildren mean the world to me. The Lord's more important than they are, even than they are. More important than anything in your life, your career or your ambition or your accomplishments or more important than your failures, more important than your brokenness, more important than everything, your heritage or other people's plans for your life. Everybody's got a plan for your life. Everybody's got a plan for your life. <laughs> But he's, he's got the greatest plan, so he's our first love. The second uh, outward we're going to talk about tonight, that's living a life of love, that we would move out. We, we start with those who are nearest and dearest to us. So my wife is my first, is my, moving out is my first love, my first concern, and my children, my wife, my family, my children, and then God's church, and, and, and you, then your neighbors, and and it keeps going out from there, and pretty soon you find out that on that list of out is uh, people that you don't get along with so well, or people that you don't know at all, or people who you know too well, and, uh, and, and uh, them too. Them too, even your enemies. That's the out direction. We're going to talk about some of that. Not all of that, but some of that tonight. And then the down direction is that you, you renounce yourself. We'll do this next week, the down direction, and that was... Um, wonderful for me to run into in my own life, a sort of wonderful, uh, a sobering kind of wonderful, um, that I could actually get over myself, which is, a, which is wonderful. That you and I don't have to live self-absorbed lives where we're the center of everything and the reason for it. We can really get over ourselves and find ourselves in the process of getting over ourselves. And the indirection is that you pay attention to your heart. That you, um, that you are, as I like to say, an inside-out operation. You move from the inside out. Human beings are inside-out critters. What's in the heart comes out. And so if you're, if you're ever going to live this life of, of Jesus, you, your heart has to be healed. And, and the inner part of you has, has to be has to become like him. So you, you're attentive to your heart. You, you guard your heart in the word of Proverbs. You watch over your heart. You curate your heart. It's like a garden. You have to weed it. You have to plant it. You have to make sure it's well watered. So we get to be attentive to our hearts. We'll come to that in week four. So that's that is uh, what we're doing these four weeks. Last week was up. Tonight's direction is out, outwards in love. 
um, we're told in the Bible to love our fellow believers, our families, our neighbors, our enemies, our strangers, aliens. Anybody who seems to you to be a little strange, you love them too. I was, um, I was stopped on that one um, in the middle of all the political controversy of the last two or three years about, um, about uh, uh, immigration in this country. Um, do you know that we are told over 40 times in the Old Testament to love the alien and the stranger among us? You know, and, and I, I just, um, I tend to be um, politically um, different than your rector. We, we, have, we, have, we, have, we have good fellowship over this issue. We do indeed. We do indeed. And I put up with Jonathan, even though he's quite evidently wrong in, in lots, of, <laughs> lots of areas. We, we have, and I've got the microphone right now, but, but he can pull the plug, so I know... <laughs> I know where the authority lies around here. So we have a lot of conversation about this. I tend to be a very conservative guy, um, and, uh, and, I, and I like to say to my fellow conservatives, do you know that my fellow Christian conservatives, that the Bible 40 times in the Old Testament talks about loving the alien and the stranger? And I think it's worth going to our Bibles before we get on the blogs and start you know, ranting about this or about that or being so sure that we've got everything right politically. It's worth digging into the scriptures and letting God speak to us about, about what, what his heart is like and what our hearts could be like. Because we're going to find out that the templates of the right or the templates of the left aren't going to make it. God's heart is a lot bigger than either of those templates. And let him, let him shape your politics. Let him shape your heart first and then your politics second. So, that, I mean, you know, so we're going to talk about love tonight. I want to start with a report from Rome. Um, a couple of years ago, the Vatican hosted an international conference on the family. It was pretty famous, and, um, and they invited a lot of religious and cultural leaders from around the world to reflect on the importance of the family. And I read a bunch of what had been written in that conference. One of the talks given during that week was by Lord Sachs, who is the retired chief rabbi of Great Britain. It was a stirring talk. I've read some of his stuff since then. He's worth reading and listening to. He's, he's a significant guy. Uh, he, it brought people to their feet by the end, by the time he was done. And, and I want to quote to you some of his paragraphs. I've given you one of his quotes on your material tonight, so some of the things that I'll say to you are there in print in front of you, but some of them are not. These, are, these first ones are not. What made the traditional family remarkable is what it brought together. This is Lord Sachs. Sexual drive, physical desire, friendship, companionship, emotional kinship, and love. The begetting of children, their protection and their care, their early education and induction into an identity and a history. Seldom has any institution woven together so many different drives and gave it the face of love. That's what the family has done in Western civilization. For a variety of reasons, he continues, almost everything that marriage once brought together has now been split apart. Sex has been divorced from love. Love from commitment and marriage. Marriage from having children. And having children from responsibility for their care. Split apart, I like his phrase. Split apart is a good phrase, but it's a terrible thing. You and I live in a culture that's splitting things apart in, in our day. And, and just in our lifetimes, you could add to his list of things that have been split apart. Lord Sachs went on to way that, say that that's a way of thinking about culture also. Does it pull things together or does it pull things apart? You want to live in a culture that pulls things together. And if we don't live in a culture that's pulling things together, we get to build a culture that is pulling things together. That's what the church can do. Everywhere you look around you, you see things that are ripped apart. And things don't work very well when you rip them up. They don't. We know that. 
So think of community life. Um, most of us don't know our neighbors very well or, or the people that we work with very well. Our most important relationships are often shallow. They're disconnected. They're like Facebook friendships, famously, like Facebook friendships or something like that. Our most important commitments are easily broken these days. And we don't seem to care much. We just go on as a culture. Think of family life. About 40% of marriages fracture. In Great Britain this year, 46% of children will be born in single-parent household. A whole generation is growing up to think that that's normal. That's not normal. In the history of the world, that is very unusual. Think about our civic life, of how any civic or political discourse is haunted by anger and judgment. It's, it's difficult to have any civic discourse or political discourse on college campuses these days, you, 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 uh, unless you all agree with, with the way uh, the, the mainline campus thought is going these days. You can't have discourse. Think about your environment being ripped up. I've been reading Wendell Berry recently, um, read a book of his over the last two, three weeks called Jaber Crow. Really loved it, really loved it. I listened to a 2012 talk that he gave to the, oh gosh, uh, National Endowment of the Arts. Somebody might know, he got a, 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 an annual award for, um, I, it, I think it was the National Endowment of the Arts. Anyway, he gave a, a talk at the Kennedy Center and, and he talked about what had happened to the farmers in this country. Farmers who for generations lived on small farms and had, here's his key word, had affection for those farms. Have now been swept out of business and replaced by agribusiness who drains the farms of all their resources, drains them, literally just brings them down to the floor, has no affection for anything except maximizing the bottom line, the economic bottom line of it. I, I have been taken by Wendell Berry's call to recover affection for the created order around us. I think it's a deeply biblical thought. Think about your mobility. How often you've moved from one community to another. By the time Becca and I came to St. Stephen's in 1995, we were married in 77, came in 95, so 18 years later, we had lived in seven different cities and in 13 different houses. We, we had made a career out of saying hello and goodbye to people. Now you think about what kinds of things rip up when, when you live like that or you live in a world like that. Things are getting shredded all around us and we're poorer because of it. We live in a culture that's ripping things apart. The Apostle John was responsible for five of the 27 books in the New Testament from the gospel uh, to his letters to his Bible ending book of Revelation and in all those pages two sentences of his are, are, are famous sentences that everybody knows. The first one is that simple three-word line, God is love. John is saying that there's something else going on in the world besides this pull it apart, tear it up kind of thing that we have to deal with. This go it alone, it's all about me kind of culture uh, that we have to live in. There is God who is mending things with his love. This God was here long before American culture was here, before there was any culture, there was God. And there was a culture with God, if you could say it like that, there was a God is love culture. The way Jesus began to say it, and it startled people when he said it, was that long before the world was made, the Father loved the Son and gave everything to him. And the Son loved the Father and yielded everything to him. That was the original culture of reality. God is love was John's phrase for it. And out of that love and because of that love and for the sake of that love, God created you and me and everything else. We're made for that love. Everybody you know, everybody you meet, every human being 
you lays eyes on was made for that love. God built it into them. And this whole world was made for that love. The whole created order, the whole cosmos was made to celebrate that love and sing of that love and dance in that love and live in that love. When everything went wrong, when Adam and Eve said their famous no to God's life and God, God's love, God did something about that. He, he doubled down on his love. He did not rip it up and walk away and wash his hands. He doubled down on it. And that leads to John's best known sentence. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. It's all about love. We love to think about, think about the second half of that sentence about Christ and his death for us and faith in him and eternal life that comes. Think just a moment. I was, when I was reading Wendell Berry, his um, Jaber Crow, the main character in there at one point, who was a barber, referred to this sentence and said, I love to think about the first half of that sentence. And I thought, huh. I've never thought much about that first half of that sentence. God so loved the world. He loved this world right the way it was, broken and ripped up, hurting, hardened, missing his love, lost from his love. He loved that world, every part of that world. He still does. It's God's heart to love that world, this world, our world. It's all about love. So it's no surprise, I suppose, that the life that he gives to him is the life that comes from love and lives in love and is destined for love. That is the out direction of the Christian life. I think in our culture today, there are some places that are desperately in need of love that are critical places. Um, I don't know quite how to phrase them. I've got a list of four of them on your outline there, home and church and neighborhood and workplace. But these, these are um, permanent things, as T.S. Eliot once called them. These are things that no human community ever lives well without home and church and community and workplace. They're desperately in need of God's love. I think that home and church are the incubators of love, schools where love is learned and received and practiced and grown. Home and church are the incubators. You just think about what happens to a child when a child is born. So I'm a dad, I, I got six kids, and I've gotten to watch this again and again. I, I, I do not know, and I hear from the scientists, that there is no species that gives birth to such needy babies as human beings do. I mean, children, human children, are helpless from the time they're born, totally helpless from the time they're born until about the age of 35, I think, is <laughs> my marker on it. About that time, they get on their feet, you know, and they start to do something in the world. And so for those 35 years, raising those kids is a 24-7 job. It's an on-call duty to love. We, we didn't know how we would do it. Lots of people thought we didn't know how to stop doing it. <laughs> we loved having the kids that, that we had. We loved every one of them. And it was overwhelming. It was totally overwhelming. I was with my daughter, Susanna, last, uh, today, a little bit. She lives in Swickley with us. She's got three babies who are three and under, and um, twins among them. And, um, and she's just totally overwhelmed. They've been sick and sick and sick. And now she's sick and throwing up, and her husband travels for work. And so we're on duty, and we get sick, and she gets sick, and they get sick. And then we pass it around again. And, I mean, I remember those years. It was crazy. I, I think Beck and I at one point honestly tried to count it up that, um, that we had gone a decade without sleeping through the night 
more than five times. I think that's honestly true. We are always up with somebody for something, you know, one thing or another. You just get stretched. And then what we found was that as we got stretched, God filled our hearts. There was, there was more room for his love. I remember when our second baby came along, we loved Tim, our little first baby, so much. When Matthew came along, we thought, oh my goodness, we don't know if we have enough love for him. But God stretched our hearts and made more room. That's how he does it. I I wouldn't be anything of what I am now if it wasn't for that stretching process. Stretching and filling and stretching and filling again and again. So we learn love in, in the home. And our children learn their first lessons of love in the home. I think the church is a place just like that. You walk in the door because a friend has brought you, and if it's a healthy people, a healthy church, people come up to you, and and they begin to welcome you to this place. And then you hear about this God and this love and this Jesus, and you wonder when you begin to hear the stories that there might be some of that love, enough of that love even for you. And you find out, oh my goodness, you find out that there is not just a little bit, but a whole lot, even for you, even for for a guy like me. And then you discover that just like the home, the church is really a school where you learn to live in his love. Some of the lessons can be pretty edgy in church because some of us I've noticed along the years are are pretty quirky in church. We, We do attract quirky people. Uh, you know, like, like, like you, right? And like me and Jonathan and people like us, quirky people like us. Peculiar people was Peter's, St. Peter's phrase for it. Here we are. And then you find out that healthy churches have room for lots of mistakes along the way because it's all about love. And then you find a way to work through all of that. Did you notice that you cannot get close to people if you're, uh, that you, excuse me, that you have to get close to people if you're going to grow in love? There is no other way to do it. It cannot be done over social media. Really can't be done over social media. It cannot be done by TV screens. It takes face-to-face time with people. James Dobson used to say that children spell love T-I-M-E. I think he's right. They do. We do spell love like that. There's no other way to have love grow than to spend time with each other. So I think that's part of the reason why you have families and churches and why churches are always breaking up into small groups um, because you have to have time that you have life to life and heart to heart where you're walking in this faith together and share your lives with each other. If you're not in a small group, I very much hope you join one. It's very important. So love is received and practiced and learned in the home and the church. And when that happens, it spills over. It spills over to neighborhood and workplace. And that begins uh, something that is really, really important. If there's no love in the church and no love in the home, there's going to be no love in the workplace and no love in the neighborhood. It works like that. I think it does. This last, this last week... Um, the Pittsburgh Fellows, you all have partnered with us for some years in, in doing the Pittsburgh Fellows. We're still doing it. We, we, had a, we go down to the Duquesne Club for a breakfast once a year. Jonathan's been there a couple times at least. And um, I went down again this year. And we invited in a local corporate leader to talk to us about the, the Pittsburgh Fellows is all about integrating your faith in Jesus Christ with your calling in the, in the workplace, in, in corporate structures mostly. Most of these young adults are working for corporations. It's a one-year program after college uh, for kids who have a keen faith in the Lord and a calling to the corporate world, and they want to learn how to integrate their faith with their calling. So we work to mentor them and deploy them and get them opportunities, and it's a great program. Well, we heard this past week from a guy named Ray Bettler. Ray Bettler, I, my wife had met, I had not met before. He's the former CEO of Westinghouse. He's been uh, three decades in the Pittsburgh area, a long time in the Pittsburgh area in his career. 
He was the former CEO of Westinghouse at the age of 38. He became the CEO of Westinghouse. He was a high achiever, hard worker. And, um, and then he uh, was made six years ago, the, he's the current CEO of, of Wabtech. He stayed with Westinghouse for 30 years, then he went to Wabtech. And Wabtech is a $4 billion company that has 20,000 employees and a network of suppliers that reaches to 250,000 laborers. Um, um, employees of different supply companies. It's a very big operation. And so this guy has had a, um, a, a career like, like a meteor. Um, uh, he's about five years younger than I am, and, and he's done all that. He's a devout Christian. Uh, he's, a very, he's very vocal about his faith. He started out by singing a song about the, um, the old, old story of, of God's love, Oh, I forget where Jeannie went when I need her. Um, what what is that? The old the old story. I want to tell the story. I love to tell this. There you go. Thank you all of Jesus and His glory. Yeah, and so he sang the first verse of that a cappella. You would not want this guy in your choir. Let me tell you, <laughs> he had a very strong voice. He loves to sing, and it was so endearing just so endearing. He loved to sing the Lord. He sang that a cappella, and then he talked to us about God's love. He told us the story of his life, and then he told us the story of his career, and then he ended up by, I want to read a couple paragraphs to you. My firm belief is that the Lord put me in the roles I've occupied because my real job is to be a witness of his love. What does love in the workplace mean? It means the same thing it means in any relationship. Put others before yourself. Leaders should not use their position of authority abusively. The easiest thing in the world when you have perceived authority is to be a jerk, especially if you have authority that allows you not to be challenged. Love in the workplace exists when leaders serve those they lead and when everyone is given the opportunity to be successful in whatever role they hold within an organization. Love in the workplace is about picking people up, not stomping them down. Love can be seen in people's work ethic, attitude, value system, and their commitment to one another. I want you to keep the word humility in mind. Throughout my career, the thing that's most often prevented people from being successful is their ego. Pride is a terrible thing. Pride is mentioned often in the Bible. Remember this simple comment, egos kill. It is harder to love than to be loved. It's hard to love. I'm, I'm breaking off his comment here. It, love is not easy. It's difficult. It's easier to hate than it is to love. Wendell Berry wrote that sentence. I wish it weren't so easy to not love. It's harder to be a good person than a bad person. Back to Ray Bettler here. Love is not easy. Love requires being honest and straightforward with people, especially when people are not performing. Love requires hard work, consideration, energy, thoughtfulness, receptivity. Love does not tolerate bigotry, discrimination, selfishness. In the workplace, where does ambition fit or deceit or conceit? or laziness, or shortcuts, or meanness, or coveting, or manipulation, or misrepresentation. All are examples of things that tear down and destroy organizations. Love heals. Love promotes proper behavior. Love affords success. Find and support love in the workplace. Serve others. Seek the truth. Allow for continuous improvement but make room for others' shortcomings. Demonstrate your commitment to teamwork and shared success. Take time to listen. Show steadfast, unchanging, unconditional love. Wouldn't you like to work for a guy like that? You can be a man or a woman like that. And people will flock to you. They'll love to work alongside you. They really will.
you don't have to be the CEO of WebTech. Matter of fact, it's going to be pretty difficult to be the CEO of WebTech and, and pull off that. I, I was all the time thinking, this guy's got no time, no time, no time. And then he had two of his associates stand up and they told little stories about, about one who had a dog that died and how Ray Bettler spent an hour and a half with him on a Sunday night just sympathizing about his dog. His dog meant the world to this guy, just meant the world to this guy. And he walked away from that saying, I, I, I'll do anything for that man. I mean, really. And you would too. Because love's that important. So you and I are called to the life of Jesus and the love of Jesus in church, in home, in the neighborhood, in the workplace. I want to give you three thoughts about something that love does. The first one, these are on your outline, the first one is that love leans in. I want to think with you for a moment just about churches. The divisions between the churches trouble me. I've been around the churches over my life, and I'll bet you have too. Most of us have. We've had to face those divisions in my own family. We've had to go through a division in our denomination. That was the most difficult part of my career was what happened here in, in Pittsburgh. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. This, this is one of the passages that I, that I think that, that God has given to me. It's from Corinth in chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3. The Corinthians were breaking up the church based on their preference for celebrity pastors. And, um, and, and Paul was horrified by this. He, he said, stop it. Just stop it. Don't do that. And then he wrote these verses. Let nobody boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. It's all yours. God gives it to you. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. All of that God places in your lap. It's all yours. So why fight over who has more when God has given you everything, Paul is saying. Where's the sense in that? So what I do in churches is I have kind of a simple little rule, and it's probably not good enough, but where Christ is trusted and followed and the faith is held, I lean in. The rest of it doesn't really matter that much. I have my preferences. You have your preferences. And they're probably perhaps deeply held. Mine are, but not as deeply held as this love that the Lord gives us. That's taken me some strange places over the years. I, I learned to speak well of other Christians and learn from other Christians and sit at other Christians' feet and walk by their side and pray for other Christians and carry in others' burdens and respect other traditions. I remember Jesus' words that whatever you do for a fellow Christian, you do for him. It's all about love. What about the difficulties in the churches? Well, we, we know something about the difficulties in the churches. So what we do is we bear our witness with clarity and charity. That's been our motto over this last decade. We have worked hard on that. If it, led, it led Jonathan and I together. We've had a couple projects to go have um, lunches with Harold Lewis. We probably had half a dozen lunches or something like that with Harold Lewis over at the Duquesne Club and lengthy, honest conversation trying to bridge a gap that turned out to be unbridgeable. It led Jonathan and I back in 2012 to go um, meet with Dorsey McConnell, the current bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Pittsburgh. For me, it was the first time to meet him. Jonathan had known him, and, uh, or at least known of him. And, um, and so we went out drinking beer together, the three of us. And we've done it probably every six months for the last six years, spending two, two and a half hours together. I, I wanted Dorsey to know me. I wanted to know Dorsey. Jonathan felt the same. I wanted there to be some love between us. If we would come back to litigation, if, God forbid, we had to go back to litigation, I wanted the people on that side of the table 
to love the people on this and the same way back and forth. Because then we'd be at our best, no matter what we had to face, instead of at our worst. Over those 10 years, I've kept relationships with four pastors who stayed behind the Episcopal Church in place. And I've done the same thing with them. Spent lengthy evenings or lunches or whatever with them on a regular basis to try and keep love in place. And, and I, I, I think love leans in. God can make something out of that. And I think has made something out of that for our 12 churches now, or the nine of us who've, who've gone through the mediation and have signed the agreement. And we're happy to be signers, co-signers with you, with you all in that. It's a God project. Here's a second one, love stays put. Back in my sabbatical studies in 2014, I ran across St. Benedict, who I'd heard of but never really studied, and I read a lot of what he'd written. Actually, the only thing we have of what he's written is this rule of St. Benedict. It's a short little book. I read it, and uh, I was really interested in it. And you remember um, St. Benedict, uh, maybe he uh, died about 540 A.D., launching uh, at the end of his life, or what was well underway during his life, what we now call the Dark Ages, a widespread cultural collapse that was far, far worse than what we face today. St. Benedict began to do something that was really important in response to that. He built a monastery, then he planted 12 daughter monasteries, a dozen of them in all, up through Europe. Those were church-planting monasteries. Um, And they began to live differently and build a new culture in those monasteries. The best of the old culture um, underrooted by biblical and gospel realities. And it was the culture of those monasteries that spread to the churches, that spread to the communities, that became the backbone of Christian civilization as you and I came to know of it in Western Europe. That is really how it got started. Now, a central part of what... what, uh, what, um, Uh, Benedict did was he called people to a vow of stability. I want to give you that word tonight. Love stays put. And what he meant was that when when his monks signed up to join him in one of his monasteries, they they signed a vow of stability, which meant they would stay in that monastery for the rest of their lives. During their first months after they were tonsured, after they took their vows, they went out and selected their gravesite. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. I've wondered if God might actually raise up the virtue of stability, the call of stability in our fractured, transient, move whenever I feel like moving, things get tough, I'm pushing on. You know, if they don't like my sermons, I'm out of here or something like that, I don't know. Um, I remember when uh, I came up from Shreveport in 1995, um, my daughter Hannah, my fifth child Hannah, who was like first grade at the time, um, we we got here and she looked at me one time, we were taking her to school, and I looked in the rearview mirror and she's behind me. And she was worried, and she started, her her lips started to quiver, and she was worried. I said, honey, what's the matter? She said, daddy, daddy, if, if you've... If, if, you don't, if they don't like your sermon, will we have to leave? And I said, I, said, I don't think so, honey. I, I think we're okay. I think we're okay. <laughs> Stability looks like this. Stay where God has put you. Invest your life there. Work through the problems that you will have to face there. Work through them. Give yourself right there. Let love grow right there. It'll take time and patience and surrender and stability. Stability says this God, this Savior, this Bible, this family, this place, this mission, this church, these people, This life be very difficult to move. That's my sentence for it. Be very difficult to move. Stability. Love stays put. 
I, here's one. Of, I, I sometimes mine the ancient church for things like this. Um, uh, and I got a wonderful story. Uh, this is from Ama Sincletia. Sincletica. And she's speaking to um, fellow monastics. If you're living in a monastic community, do not go to another place. It will do you a great deal of harm. If a bird abandons the eggs she has been sitting on, she prevents them from hatching. I really like that sentence. If a bird abandons the eggs she's been sitting on, prevents them from hatching. Hatch those eggs. You may have to sit on them for a while. I have been amazed, as I'm now in my 23rd year at St. Stephen's, over the last five or seven years, I have had conversations with 10 or a dozen people where our relationship was tough during the first five to seven years. And then a decade down the road, God gives you a chance to do it again. And the conversations have been, without exception, healing conversations. It would never happen if I'd moved on to another parish. You just carry those wounds with you, and so do they. And, but if you stick around, and you're patient, love heals. Love can heal. All right, so how can a love like this be real in lives like ours? Well, love comes down. That's my third headline here. And I've got some thoughts on this. I, you know that, um, that those words of Jesus that we start our worship with? Hear what the Lord Jesus Christ says. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with your soul and all your mind. That's the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, we call that the great commandment, the great commandments. I want to point something out to you. The word shall is not only a commandment, it's a promise. So I just want to read the phrases again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. You shall It's really going to happen. He's given you that kind of a life. He will make you into that kind of a man, that kind of a woman. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He promises. He doesn't only command. What he commands, he gives. We shall. That's where we're heading. That's what this life is all about. We're in training for love. So how does that happen? These last two headlines here, to give love, you must receive love. You can't give away what you don't have, and our love is not enough. Just live for a while, and we all find that out. You find, I, I think that's why God blesses us with marriage. <laughs> Just so we find out that our love is not enough. It's why he gives us kids. It's why he puts us in church. It's why he puts us in communities. So that we can learn that we need a greater love than our love. I, um, I love this verse. Um, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. 1 John 4, 7. Time and time again, I've taken that verse as a promise that if I need more love, I can go to him and he'll give me more love. Love comes from God. I have prayed that prayer hundreds of times when my own love has failed. There's been nothing more heartbreaking to me in my life as a Christian than the failure of my own love for the people of my parish or in family matters or with friendships, 
there's nothing more painful to me than, than that. And we all know about that pain. We all do. Love comes from God. If you ask, he gives. Sometimes I'll be crude about it. I'll say, Lord, could you let down another bucket, please, of your love? Or just something like that. And I have never found that prayer unanswered. I think he's good for that prayer. He promises. And then one more headline I'd give you. To grow love, you must love. To grow love, you must give love. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If we love one another, his love is perfected in us. John is telling us that as we receive God's love, what we receive, we give. That's what we're called to do. So if you've been forgiven, you become forgiving. If you have been given love, then you become a man or a woman of love. And the more you do that, the more his love grows in you. It's made perfect in you. My capacity for love is much greater after 35 years, 40 years of raising children and grandchildren than it ever would have been otherwise. Because that's how God stretches you. Or 35, 40 years of being a pastor. That's how God stretches you. But if I'm going to hold back, if I'm going to keep unforgiveness in my heart or bitterness in my heart or anger in my heart, it'll kill love. You can't do that. You have to let it go. C.S. Lewis, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. When you behave as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. I think that's very true. I think that's part of the secret to growing love in your life, that you receive it from the Lord and then you work on it, you work on it, you work on it, especially when you don't feel like working on it or working on it anymore. Especially when it feels like swimming upstream, especially when it's going against your desires or against your emotions or something like that. That's the very most important time to do what the Lord tells you to do, to love somebody. Love, remember we defined it last week, love means seeking the good of somebody. It means seeking their good, doing what blesses them, doing what is good to them, for them. That's what love is. It's not a feeling. It's an action. It's something you do. You do it with Christ. And so I pray a lot like this, Lord, I need more of your forgiveness. I've run out of my own again. I need more of your mercy, Lord. Could you give me some more of mercy? I, I have prayed, I had, I had a great problem with um, sexual behavior prior to my conversion and marriage to Becca. The damage from that is a lifelong condition that I live with. And all through my life, I've begun to pray, since my conversion, I've begun to pray a different prayer. Lord, would you help me see women like you see them? Would you help me to love women like you love women? Lord, please. I love that prayer. I love God's answers to that prayer. So we go to him for the love that we need and the kind of love that he has. You ask, he gives, and then you put it into your life, into your, into your everyday rituals and liturgies, and, um, and you live like that, and love begins to grow. All right. It's 16 after. And um, I want to do something with you tonight that's a little different than we did last week. I want to tell you a story and then ask you to do something with me.
you're going to have to stand up to do this, but not now, not yet. So I'm a, um, I'm a fan of the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. I have, a, I have a brother who was converted to Eastern Orthodoxy during my college years. He became a monk um, in the old calendar, uh, Russian Orthodox Church. He's now in a monastery out in California. Um, he has been a monk for longer than I've been married. Um, he really wanted me to become a monk with him, and I was really seriously thinking about that until I met Becca. And then I thought, I could go be a monk with my brother, or I could go have babies with Becca. <laughs> and this was, this was a done deal. Becca and I were married nine months later, and she didn't meet my brother until we were married for 14 years, and we had had all six of our children. And we went out to his monastery, and we had a wonderful time. It was a healing, a real healing between my brother and me. And anyway, I've, I've been a student of orthodoxy and a fan of orthodoxy. My spiritual director is, the, uh, is an orthodox uh, bishop up in Cranberry who's a dear, dear friend. I've met with him almost 50 times over the last four years, and he's a dear father and God to me. Anyway, okay. So I've learned a lot about orthodoxy. I want to tell you a story about orthodox Lent. I want to tell you how they start Lent. Um, they start Lent on what they call Cheese Fair Sunday. Cheese Fair Sunday is like our Shrove Tuesday. Cheese Fair Sunday um, is, they start Lent on Monday, not Wednesday. And so Sunday's the last day before Lent. Cheese Fair means they eat up all their dairy products, and dairy products are on their do not eat list, fasting list, during the season of Lent in Orthodoxy. And um, meat and dairy products they give up. Anyway, uh, the end of the night on Cheese Fair Sunday is a Vesper service, and at the Vesper service, um, they do something to close the service that I want to do with you tonight, um, and uh, they call it Forgiveness Sunday, and this is what they do. Um, the pastor stands in front of all the people, and he bows to them, and he says, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And the people all bow back to him, and they say, God forgives. And then all the people bow to the pastor, and they say, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Then the pastor bows back to them and says, God forgives. And they do this, um, they start it like that, and I want to do that with you in a moment. And then they do something else that we'll not be able to do because we only have 10 minutes. Um, the pastor stands up here, and then the people come to him with the clergy first in the congregation, the vestry, the staff, the lay leaders come first. And so Jonathan would come first, and we would bow to each other and say that back and forth, and Jonathan would stand to my right. And then maybe Susan would come next, and and she would come by and bow to me and bow to Jonathan, and we would greet each other one at a time like that, and then she would stand there, and the line gets longer, and everybody greets everybody in the place like that before the night is over, and then Lent starts. Would you please stand? <clears throat> 